Hello, and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 73 movies, and one cage. Today, episode 20, 1993's Amos and Andrew. I'm your host, Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski, and this is a movie that solves racism. So, congratulations, movie. Problem solved. Racism is over in America. Bravo. Before we watch any movie, I always go through the writer, the director, and a lot of the main actors, and I see who's been in other Cage movies, who's going to be in Cage movies that are coming up. And this movie has a decent number of actor Cage connections. I don't know for sure, but I would say probably one of the higher numbers of Cage connections of any of the movies that we've watched so far. Well, I'm glad that there's something kind of good to come out of this, I suppose. Do you want to enlighten me now as to the Cage connections? Yeah, absolutely. So the movie is Nicolas Cage's Amos O'Dell, and his co-star is Samuel L. Jackson as Andrew Sterling. And this is the first of three Sam Jackson movies that we're going to touch here on Cage Club. Wow. He's in Kiss of Death, which is coming up pretty soon. And he's in Astro Boy as another voice alongside Cage. I had no idea. That is insane. Awesome. I didn't know that either. Also in this movie is Giancarlo Esposito, Gus Fring from Breaking Bad. He had a very, 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 very tiny part in the Cotton Club. Oh my gosh, that was him as that Sam was him Jackson's as brother? As the, they're not brothers, though, I don't think. Well, I think that's I think his sister, brother. brother-in-law. That's his sister. They're related okay. somehow. Come on, they're related, aren't they? I don't know, because the whole that's a whole big thing in the movie about Cage calling okay. Sam Jackson his brother, oh, and right. I'm not sure if it was actually brother or casual <sighs> brother. All right, that's just a whole other level of confusion this movie just, <laughs> just dropped on me. Okay. We'll get there. And the other Cage connection is Brad Dourif, who is one of the best character actors maybe of all time, will show up again in Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. But it's Brad Dourif that when this movie starts, this blew my mind. And it has nothing to do with Nicolas Cage. It has really very little to do with Cage Club. The thing that I know Brad Dourif from, and I'm sure you do too, Mike, first season of The X-Files, Brad Dourif plays this guy, Luther Lee Boggs, in an episode called Beyond the Sea which is the episode where Scully's dad dies. Yes. And Luther Lee Boggs is sort of a, not a psychic, but he's kind of a medium, like he can channel the spirit of dead people. He really freaks Scully out because her dad dies at the start of the episode, and he's this like guy on death row, and he makes Scully believe that he's channeling her father. But what's crazy, and what like really honestly blew my mind, is that this was a year before, Amos and Andrew was a year before this episode of The X-Files aired, basically the same time, right? Mm-hmm. This movie, with Brad Dourif in it, starts with Beyond the Sea, the song, playing over the opening credits. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. I, I, I totally forgot he was actually in an X-Files episode. I know him best as the voice of murderous child toy all-around good guy, Chucky, the, murder, mm. the murderous child's play doll. And then I know him as the doctor from Deadwood. I mean, he, like you say, he's a, an, a great character actor. Yeah, that X-Files connection is awesome because it does indeed begin with, with Beyond the Sea. Because his name's in the opening credits because he's one of the stars of the movie. And so seeing his name while hearing that, knowing that Amos and Andrew came out less than a year before that episode, and that's really honestly, like in terms of quote-unquote important X-Files episodes, one of the more important ones and one of the best ones early on, he sings that song to Scully in the episode. And I was just like, what is happening here? As soon as that cage connection happened, or as soon as that, not even cage connection, just that connection happened, 
everything went down. I was like, oh, this is not a good movie. Well, there's there's also right on those opening credits by Spide another cage connection I saw on the uh, the ferry boat. I suppose it's the ferry. It opens with the ferry that Sam Jackson's going to the yep. island on, and there's a red sports car on the boat. <laughs> so Even sort a of red a sports car, sort of foreboding imagery right there, uh, knowing what we're about to get into. And there's the red sports car in the spoiler alert on the ferry on the end of the movie that you sent me the screenshot of the car on the ferry on the way there. And then I noticed that it's on the ferry on the way back. So maybe it's it's not his car, but maybe it's it's somebody who's on the island going to and from the island. So you want to know, my actual guess was the actors had to ferry their cars over to the island for, for <laughs> filming, and that's actually his car. Like, that might be Sam Jackson's car. Or Nick Cage, the actor's car, and, <laughs> and got it in the shot. Definitely buy that. So another Cage connection is that this movie starts once again with Cage in prison. We've done 20 movies, and he's been in jail... Like four or five of them? <laughs> yeah, and it's it's not the end of it either. Like he's going back to jail a couple times too, isn't he? Yeah, like he's he's very he's got a very tumultuous grip of the law, relationship with the law throughout his career. I don't want to turn this into like cage connection after cage connection, but the movie is so offensively racist for a lot of it. It doesn't seem smart enough to to prove a point. I think all these cage connections that we're pointing out let us escape from the reality <laughs> of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, in jail, we see him, and he rolls up his sleeve, and he's got a little billiards ball tattoo on his arm, back to Rumblefish, back to Racing with the Moon, always in trouble with the law, always in love with billiards. I love the tattoo because... It says foreplay. It's a four ball <laughs> with the word play written under it. And it's just so in line with his characters being, you know, these like sexually charged guys yeah. that are always looking for a piece, you know? And so I saw that foreplay tattoo and I knew that's all that was on his mind is just sex. This whole movie, he's just looking for a piece. I also liked how when we are introduced to him, he's doing a handstand. Yeah. What was that about? Like, is he just medit? I think maybe he was just meditating or trying to do something interesting that he's not just sitting on a cot or lying down. I just thought it was strange, like, how many people just in prison are just doing handstands? This makes no sense in the grand scheme of things. But I saw it as in Honeymoon in Vegas, he's thrown into that jail cell, right, with the big, fat, naked guy on the cot. Mm -hmm. And so I saw it as he just needs to exist somewhere else in the cell. So he's able to do a handstand because he can't go on the bed. And so he's just learning other ways to deal with life in a cell. It's like this hive mind (laughs) of Cage characters throughout his career that he learned how to do this in one movie and just does it in another movie. Yeah, I buy that. It's like every time, every time he's in a cell, he's got to be doing something different than the last movie. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, so how many times has he been in jail so far? He's, he was in jail in Honeymoon in Vegas, in Wild at Heart, in Raising Arizona. Are we missing any? He was, in Wild at Heart, he went to jail twice. I don't know if we want to... And Raising Arizona, he went to jail four or five times. <laughs> it's a lot of jail time. Still he's not really, like, they're, they're not movies about jail. Like, just, he's just there. Like, that's just part of his characterization. He'll go back to jail for Con Air, and even Face Off, he visits a jail. Uh, <laughs> he's Technically, he's in it, but is he? Is it? I mean, we'll get there, but it's kind of hard to talk about Face Off right now. <laughs> Before we talk too much about this movie, we need to talk about the racism in this movie. Yeah. It's Amos and Andrew. Its name was inspired by, though I don't know if there's anything really more of a connection to Amos and Andy, the old radio show that became a TV show. When it was a radio show in the 50s, it was two white guys doing the voices of all these black characters in Harlem. That premise alone is incredibly racist. Uh, When it made its way to television, they got black actors to play the roles because obviously you can't sort of hide behind radio anymore. It's a movie that's sort of alluding to a time of racism. And in this movie, multiple characters put on blackface. 
for quote unquote night ops, but still put on blackface. It's very strange. Uh, I have a couple ideas as to how this movie could have possibly been made in the first place, but you're right in how it evokes like this minstrel show mentality. I don't know if it's trying to be a satire of that or update it and try and see if there's any sort of acceptable level of that during this time. It all comes across in pretty bad taste, you know, like especially within the context of today. None of this humor quite holds up no the only thing like i could be thinking about because i remember when this movie came out there was like a pretty strong climate of like political correctness was just sort of starting to infest the social consciousness and everybody was being super political correct uh so this could have been an early response to something like that i'm not saying it is i'm not trying to you know i'm not apologizing for this movie whatsoever uh, and the other thing i was thinking of is just at this time in hollywood they were buying up licenses like crazy you know they were doing beverly hillbillies flintstones brady bunch so someone might, might have just said hey amos and andrew we got the license let's do that let's do something let's update it let's modernize it let's try and do it with let's let's not try and make people forget how racist the original was <laughs> you know any of that but those are just the ways i was trying to sort of rationalize the creation of this movie i don't know that you really can everything about it is just so offensive i really want to know and your your possibilities kind Kind of makes sense. I want to know who had the idea for this and like who greenlit this idea. Because everything about it is just, especially in today's society, it's just bad. Well, that's the other thing, too, is uh, this was just a different time in society. There was no internet. This is even before OJ trial. You know, <laughs> like, even just a year from this movie coming out would be the OJ trial. And, like, it would play drastically different even then, just simply a year later. You know, so just so many things happened to change the landscape of society since this movie came out. It's, it's kind of this bizarre point in history. It's too bad, but... There it is. You know, there was a time when, when this was still acceptable, you know, and it was not that long ago. Because the whole plot of this movie, I think it's important to talk about the plot just to sort of emphasize how weird and, like, how much of a relic of that specific time period it is. Sam Jackson is this award-winning, brilliant man, playwright, everything, like, inventor. It seems like he's a jack-of-all-trades, like, everything that, like, a man could be good at, he seems to be good at. He's an activist, right? Like, today we would probably call him an activist. Like, he's an author, he's a public speaker, he's all, he's famous for being like the voice of part of his generation. He wrote a play called Yo Brother Where Art Thou? <laughs> and so he buys a house, a summer house on an island in Massachusetts. He goes there and the first night he's there he's just sort of getting settled, turning his music on on a stereo and this white couple on the island sees, that, sees him in this house, isn't aware that the house was sold, assumes he's a burglar because he's black, calls the cops the cops show up, tell him to come out of his house, and then open fire on him for holding a weapon, which was actually just the keys to his car to turn off the car alarm. It's, it's like even worse because the cops believe the neighbors right off the bat without yeah. any proof or anything. It's all speculation. Yeah. So Dabney Coleman, who's like the head police guy and Brad Dorff's like his number one guy, they believe the neighbors like just flat out they don't even do any investigation whatsoever and before sam jackson even knows what's going on like the house is surrounded they've got guns drawn yet brad dorf has gone into disguise he goes into night ops mode and covers his face basically in soot which is effectively blackface and sneaks up close to the house to get a better vantage point and sets off a car alarm 
And that's when Sam Jackson comes outside. Brad Dourif opens fire on Sam Jackson, right? Yeah. He later... This like, It's crazy how like timely this all is, like in terms of like Trayvon Martin and all these like things in the news. The police chief, Abney Coleman, is just like, why did you shoot at him? He's like, oh, he had a gun. Like, I, I saw a gun. And then later in the movie, the cops find out that it was just... The car keys was just for the for the car alarm. But, like, in this movie, it's played for, like, comedic effect. Yeah, that's was that's what was pretty scary. Is that, like, this whole misunderstanding that ends in, in like, a shootout almost, like, it's supposed to be funny. And I don't know. I mean, I just, again, poor taste or, or whatever, maybe just the world we live in today. It's like all yeah. these things just come crashing down on my head. I'm sort of slack-jawed watching this movie, to be quite honest with you. Like, my mouth is wide open. You know, my hands are sort of mid-air, just in the what-is-going-on position I know. most of this. Yeah, I had no idea this was what we were getting into. I mean, you know, the title should have probably tipped us off a little bit, but even that, like, who could have imagined what they were going for? And, like, to make things worse, a couple of real night crawlers show up, you know, these these amateur journalists <laughs> oh, trying to... <laughs> totally night trying, crawler, you're right. <laughs> trying to just capture some, like, some footage that they can sell to the news, not nearly <laughs> as good as Jake Gyllenhaal is as his job in Nightcrawler. They show up and they're they're interviewing the cops... And it's around this point when the cops realize that like, they are completely in the wrong. Like They realize early on. Their plan to get themselves out of hot water and to make sure that Sam Jackson is not going to press charges or whatever, doesn't think that the cops are just shooting at him because he's a black man, they're going to go to jail, they're going to get Nick Cage out of jail, they're going to put him in the house, and then he's going to surrender to them, and then instead of charging him with a crime, they're just going to let him escape to Canada like he tried to do earlier. Right, they're going to use him as a scapegoat to clean up this mess that they created before anybody hears about it, before it goes nationwide as far as the news is concerned. There was one thing about this moment that kind of infuriated me, to be honest. When Dabney Coleman is calling Sam Jackson's house and he has him on the phone and he realizes that he owns the house, that he's not in fact robbing it, he's like, yeah, that name sounds familiar. He's a really famous guy, but no one can figure out what he's famous for. He's like this very important sort of political activist, writer, novel thing, but no one on the, like everyone on the island recognizes his name, but no one knows what he does that makes him famous. It was just like another level of like infuriation. These are just like idiot police officers. Like it's just complete police incompetence. So it sort of makes sense that they don't know. He's sort of, I mean, not like as important as, and it almost seems like, like later in the movie, Giancarlo Esposito leads this mob of angry black people to rise up against the, these white cops. He's sort of like the Martin Luther King. You know what I mean? But it's, it's like Sam Jackson's almost in, in terms of this movie, as well-known as Martin Luther King, it would be insane for someone in the 60s to not know Martin Luther King's name. Martin Luther King, you know, that that name sounds familiar, but I don't know, yeah. I don't know where I know yeah, it from. Yeah, what country was he king of? <laughs> so Cage is in prison for, like, really sort of not, I don't think, two serious dude, charges? Dude, dude, his charges are statutory rape. Like he, I don't think yeah, so. wasn't he hitting? He said, eh, she told me she was 18. What was I supposed to do? What I gathered, and I went back because it sort of didn't make sense, and I might have misheard this the second time around, but I, I thought I heard that he was in prison for being drunk and disorderly 
and contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Yeah, statutory rape. <laughs> I think, but I don't know. That's that's that, they don't. Do they ever say no, that? No, no, no. They never say it. But I was pretty much thought that was implied. Later on, I there's a 17 year old so. pizza girl that shows up that he basically hits yes. on and tries to get in bed. They're setting him up in my eyes. They set this guy up as a sex offender. We're supposed to sort of grow to like this dude by the end of the movie. I was like. What? I don't know, because he, he does say she looked 18. I just thought it was that he was out drinking and having a good time and got this girl drunk and they got into trouble. I don't think he oh, raped oh, her. Oh, no, 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 not rape. Just that he was messing around with a minor. I, I'm not saying she didn't consent or anything, but, but now that I think of it, didn't he say he, was, he thought he made it to Canada and he walked into a bank to exchange American money for Canadian money and the bank teller thought that was kind of fishy and then before he knew it the cops showed up. Yeah, I don't know. He's got like it's a lot clear. of stories going on. I can't either the screenwriter couldn't keep him straight or the character's lying. I got the impression that he wasn't a rapist, but then you're right, later in the movie there's a police girl cuz the whole well actually okay. Whew. When the cops bring Cage from prison to this house where Sam Jackson is, they're riding him along in the cop car. And he sees this pizza girl, this, like, cute, young, blonde pizza girl, delivering pizza to some, you know, business or house or whatever that they pass. And he, like, stares at her as they drive by. Throughout the entire movie, every time Cage is near a phone, he tries to order a pizza. And I don't think, because it's even before he sees the girl, I think he just really (laughs) wants a pizza and a beer. When he sees the pizza girl, that just sort of, I guess, maybe adds to his desire for pizza and i'm not using pizza as a metaphor and so eventually later in the movie you know about an hour in he finally gets to order the pizza and the pizza girl that he saw earlier shows up and she is only 17 he goes to kiss her and she pulls away but then she gives him a kiss on the cheek before she leaves in that sense i do think that maybe he was in jail for statutory rape which is why i went back and i still don't get that vibe but my big thing is that cage and this actress had such great like on-screen chemistry i'm really sort of sad that she never truly made it as an actress because i would have loved to see them in some kind of like rom-commy honeymoon in vegas like movie because i thought they were great together like they're two minutes on screen yeah she really is sort of like the boba fett of the movie where like she comes on and sort of saves the moments that she is in you know and the movie just doesn't seem quite as unforgivable for everything else it's doing every scene she's in is good you know and i kind of forget how bad the previous hour has been <laughs> she's like a ray of sunshine in a very dark and stormy night so the whole cops plan is very very convoluted they don't really seem like it's not they're not good at their jobs it seems like this is not something that they've done before even for like competent police officers trying to cover up their crime it seems like it's a lot to ask of them well it seems like Um, it's this very small community like there's only about 10 cops like on the whole island and so I guess they want to just like kind of contain everything before it gets too out of control. But they're just kind of so inept, and you just get the sense that like nothing ever goes bad here. So like they're almost just police for show. They're on a rich island with presumably all really wealthy people, and then there's very little crime. You have to take a ferry to this island, so people aren't going to like go around robbing other people. I'm sure that they don't have very much excitement, which is sort of weird considering how much press shows up. You're right. I think I think they are sort of like cops for show, or they're cops that really necessarily don't 
they don't have a lot to worry about. And so, like, this is sort of, like, the biggest thing that they've had to worry about maybe in their entire careers. And it's only because they're so overwhelmed. Yeah, and I mean, they completely overreact. Like, Dabney Coleman, it's, like, the worst day of his life. Like, we should also mention, like, he's running for office, so this is going to be, like, a big problem for his campaign if they if they screw yeah. up this situation and it goes overboard. And so, like, you know, they just don't think it through because they give Cage, like, a shotgun and, like, tell him to go in there and take Sam Jackson hostage. Nick Cage is like, I'm like actually going to end up taking you hostage. Like, I'm not going to let you go. You know, like they're not going to hold up their end of the bargain. The, the police just made it so much worse. <laughs> they didn't help themselves. They didn't help Cage. They didn't help anybody in this movie. One other thing to note before we get into like the next part of the movie, Cage has a gold tooth in this movie. And dentistry, a big, a big theme here in Cage Club, pulling teeth for Birdie talking about his teeth in Peggy Sue Got Married. It's just like a little character quirk, but it's just funny that it's a tooth thing when teeth have been such a big deal in his career up to this point. Yeah, and I also liked how it instantly made him recognizable as like a criminal, you know? Like, you could tell he's a criminal because yeah. he's got a gold tooth. You know, only criminals and pirates ever have gold teeth, so in- instantly you know yeah. this guy is shady. Cage gets to the house... And he puts on blackface, I guess, for more comedic effect, but also to make him match Brad Dourif, because Sam Jackson, when he went outside, saw a guy basically in blackface, you know, with stuff on his face. Cage is basically taking the place of Brad Dourif, so he puts on blackface, you know, just making this movie even more racist, and goes inside, and Cage, as a character, is racist. He's like, what are you doing here? And Sam Jackson's like, oh, I live here. And Cage says, you sure you ain't the cook? (laughs) Then a couple lines later says, I have a shotgun. You have a frying pan. If I was here to kill you, you better believe, bro, you'd be a dead man by now. I told you before. I know, you're not my brother. Like, he's so detestable and racist and unlikable and everything in this movie of just terrible, awful characters and terrible, awful racist plot... Why not have another racist character? It just sort of like, fits part in. of me just wants to believe that the joke is look how ignorant white people are. You know, like I wish that was clear and <laughs> done correctly and everything, but it doesn't come across that way at all. It just kind of comes across like mean spirited and honest. You know, <laughs> like it bugs me when we're watching these cage movies and like this and and Cotton Club and he's you know spouting racist dialogue. I mean, I know he's an actor and stuff, and part of film is to get a reaction and everything, but. I don't know. This one just like feels like they missed every sort of target they thought they were aiming for. We are talking about the back cover of Zondali and how shocking that was. Nick Cage is in blackface on the cover of Amos and Andrew. <laughs> like he's got the it's, mud on his face, and you know it's clearly there. And I don't know. I, I didn't recognize it as anything but. One thing that I did like, and everything, it's sort of like we're just trying to find things in the movie that we did like. Uh, when he's in the house, he does a hair flip like he did in Zondali. Did you notice that? He sort of does the... It's called, it's like the cage hair flip. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. We should, we should definitely like give that move a name because he's, he's going to be doing it at least one or two more times. I could just I could feel it. So Cage gets to the house, goes inside, and he ties Sam Jackson up. And really, I mean, I understand that like, it would sort of strip the movie of its conflict, but there's really no reason why Cage's character doesn't tell Sam Jackson the entire plan. Because, I mean, like, he doesn't owe the cops anything, right? Like, he doesn't make an agreement to, like, keep the, the truth, or, or did he? Everything was going to be cool as long as Cage said something like, you know, uh, 
I think he said, don't worry, I'm going to let you go after the show's over as long as, like, my... Or he said to the cops, as long as you don't tell them my name or my face, we're cool. And the cops are like, all right, no one's going to know it's you. It's, you know, it'll be contained. And then the national news comes and all the news trucks and they're plastering Amos's mugshot, like, all over the news. And I think that's when they're watching TV and he's like, man, those guys welched on the deal. Like, deal's off. Time for some demands. Time, time to, like, turn this into a real situation. There's a lot of time where like as the stuff is building there's a sense that like oh this is going to be the whole movie like they're just going to be in this house for the entire time and i'm already like bored and like fearing the rest of the movie and thankfully things mix up a little bit it just feels like slow and sluggish and just like it doesn't felt feel well plotted or well paced well it at all. doesn't even really switch up all that much like dabney coleman decides like he's gonna rush in and finish this before it really gets too out of hand he ends up becoming a hostage (laughs) amos and andrew sort of i wouldn't say team up but amos takes andrew with him and they leave the house and he becomes his hostage sort of on the run and we get this shot of them running through the woods and i'm like oh man if it's like it reminded me of the defiant ones and i was like i should just put in the defiant ones because that movie says everything (laughs) that this one probably thinks it's trying to say and they go to another house and they hold up there like, it's, it changes, but then it doesn't, you know? And the house that they go to is the house of the white couple that call the cops on them, because I guess there aren't that many houses on this island. So the only people that we know, Sam Jackson has his house, the white people have their house, so they go to that house, and then the white people come back, Cage takes them hostage, too. And there's just, like, a lot of, you know, wacky antics, like the dog hates Sam Jackson, and Sam Jackson thinks the dog is racist. But he's actually just like afraid of dogs, and then when he's nice to the dog, like all the dogs love him. Like that's one that's an example of one of this movie's like jokes. <laughs> is that the dogs aren't racist. They just want like Sam Jackson to to, to pay them attention. But he's allergic to them, so you, they, they can't really he can't be too nice. And to Sam them. Jackson's kinda just like a liar to a degree at this point too, because he got shots and he could be around dogs and like he, he it's not that he's afraid of dogs, he just doesn't like dogs he doesn't know and once he gets to know them like he can sort of has like this caesar milan type control over them <laughs> and so does nick cage like as he's got like control over all animals i'm sure in every movie but in this one he sees the dog <laughs> and he's like sit stay and it does a, it becomes like part of their little crew at that moment <laughs> you know it's like nick sam and the dog the movie which would, which would be a better movie like i want to see them like on like a a light-hearted romp across the country. I don't want to see them hold up like on a racist island. Yeah, I want to see them like trapped in the future, like fighting to get home, and you know, like I want to see these guys together more. But like, it's just unfortunate that this happened. One thing that I thought, like, even though it is just very redundant because they just hide in houses the whole movie, like it, it is kind of smart how they think the police think they're hiding in one house and in fact they're hiding in another house but uh, even that i feel like i've seen that in like a hundred other movies before too but you know that's about as clever as this one gets well what if i told you we weren't in the house i do want to say that my favorite part of the movie i think is bob balaban oh, poor bob balaban is all i kept thinking <laughs> i don't know why he's in this movie but he gets called in as like the police psychiatrist yeah, right ultimately just sort of like has like this ongoing monologue for most of the movie like they just keep cutting back to him. Just like his like ultimate tragic life story, right? Like he's trying to sympathize with Cage 
and but he's just talking to no one, and he's just telling the saddest story yeah, in the it's, world. It's played as um, he's telling the story over the walkie-talkie. He thinks he's talking to Nicolas Cage and getting through to him, but he's but actually the only person hearing it is a gagged and bound Dabney Coleman who's Dabney sitting Coleman. in the chair. So it's it's torturing him. <laughs> so Bob Balaban's like telling his life story, and Dabney Coleman's being tortured inside the house. Well, this is part of the movie where we see my, my favorite character, which is Bob Balaban, and we also get my like a lot of my least favorite character, which is that guy Michael Lerner, who plays the guy in that the white racist couple who calls the cops oh, the in fat, Sam Jackson. The fat guy, the husband? Yeah, there's like a high comedy scene where they're like in the back of a car and Cage is trying to get in, or he's trying to, I don't know, it, whatever, it's stupid. The joke is that, like, he, that Sam Jackson keeps unlocking the door, and this guy keeps locking the door. And it happened, like, it's, it's like a full minute of the movie, of this joke. Uh, I hate this so much, and all I could think at that moment was that Sam Jackson accidentally shot this guy in the back of the car, much like he would shoot Marvin a year <laughs> later in Pulp Fiction. Like, like, Marvin's just, like, you know, a sweet, innocent little kid. This guy is the guy that you want to kill. I wonder if that's the point of this movie, too, where it's like, okay, so he's the guy who's the super racist who called the cops in the first place, and now he's acting like a selfish jerk, and, you know, he's just this big fat cat kind of guy who, you know, is a rich idiot and all this kind of... So- well, he's not an idiot, as we hear... Throughout the movie, over and over again, oh, he's a lawyer, and he's like, oh, you might have yeah, litigation. Yeah, but being a lawyer, like, again, I mean, maybe, <laughs> I think it means more in movies than it does in reality. I, I know a lot of broke lawyers, like, running around, especially nowadays. You're right, I mean, it could be that he is from that corporate sector, you know, he's he's doing corporate law, you know, defending guys like... Um, like cigarette companies and you know things like that i I wouldn't put it past this character but yeah you're right though they they spend a minute on something like when it happens in real life i get annoyed in two seconds and they go on with this door locking thing and i can't believe like how committed they are to these just terrible jokes now the one thing that that is actually that was that kind of got a reaction out of me is when they're going through their dressers in their bedroom and they find like a drawer filled with like assorted dildos of different shapes and sizes all this bondage yeah. gear and then sam jackson just like looks at it doesn't look at the screen but he may as well have looked at the screen and just goes man white people and then so later in the movie he uses that bondage gear to tie up the white people and like it's like a joke that's like the gimp but i mean like this movie i keep drawing like parallels to pulp fiction but like ooh, it could it could not be farther from like anything good i guess still talking about pulp fiction sam jackson has a speech a little over an hour in where he's just like getting worked up and it almost sounds like the marcellus wallace speech it's really frustrating to me to see Cage doing like his stuff, or Sam Jackson doing his stuff, or Brad Dourif, the character actor in this movie, or Bob Balaban, committing too much to this movie that really doesn't deserve any yeah. of it. You know what I mean? That it's like these these flashes or these glimpses of brilliance in an otherwise like awful. Yeah, package. because I don't feel like anyone's phoning it in. You know, I feel like Sam Jackson actually showed up to work. I feel like Nick Cage showed. I feel like everybody's there. You know what I'm saying? Like sometimes you can tell. Like we mentioned with Adam Sandler nowadays. So he just sort of drifts right. through those films, like, you know, in a daze. But, like, I don't feel like they thought this was the result. This is what they were doing, you know? It seems like they might have thought this was going to turn out a different 
in a different way because everyone's there. You're right. You, there's moments like Sam Jackson getting upset and you start to see, oh, he's going to be Jules in like a year or something. And like you can see that performance start to come. And then like with Nick Cage, you see his story about like growing up and his dad and stuff like, you know, there's there's stuff behind that stuff that we've seen him do before. So these guys aren't phoning it in. It's it's the movie. So the whole joke throughout the movie, as I think we mentioned earlier, is that the cops don't realize they're at the wrong house. Earlier in the movie, Cage demands, he's like, I want a million dollars and a helicopter. All right, listen up! I want a million dollars and uh, and a helicopter or I blow him away! Thank you! And later in the movie, a helicopter shows up and Cage like, looks out the window, I'm like, oh, look, his helicopter's here. But no, it's just a helicopter filled with SWAT guys who go to the old house and break in, and they quickly realize that they're at the wrong house. This is when I'm like, they should have had the second unit director shoot the entire film, because when the SWAT team sort of comes out of the chopper and breaks into the second level of the house, I was like, whoa, look how competent this filmmaking is. (laughs) Like, this just came out of nowhere. This sequence is like action and well done and like all timed well and stuff. I was like, cool, second unit director, getting some. It's like a scene from Firebirds, just like plucked from that movie. Like, hey, we have an extra helicopter, like... Just well, I gotta say, when movie. Cage demanded and a helicopter, I was like, well, of course, he knows how to fly one, like, he's a pilot, <laughs> of course he wants a chopper. They actually drag Brad Dorif out of the house, and Dabney Coleman's like, it's Amos, we got him, we got Amos. So, like, he tries to sort of collapse the whole facade, right? And then they're gonna go find him for real. And they call him Bloodhound Bob, who... I don't know if he realized this, but was in Wild at Heart as Traveler. I don't know where in the movie he was, but I'm assuming he was in that trailer park scene where just sort of all the all the oddities and weirdos, like the leftovers of that world, happen to be. They call him in. They say, "Bring both of them." And he bring he shows up with two bloodhounds, and they give the bloodhounds, I think, something of Cage's or something of Sam Jackson's to smell. And they tear off after them. But while that's happening, Cage and Sam Jackson are about to sort of part ways. They have this real heated argument. It's almost the Cage advice. Like, this is sort of Cage's, like, reality check or wake-up call in this movie. Because he's just saying some really dumb stuff to Sam Jackson. And Sam Jackson sort of, like, puts him in his place and sort of tells it like it is. Look, I ain't holding you hostage anymore, okay? But you gotta know we're in this together now, right? You and me, Amos and Andrew, let's go. Don't say that. What? Our names. Together. Why? Well, I'll spare you the history lesson. Besides, you wouldn't understand. What do you mean, I wouldn't understand? You don't understand, man. We're gangsters. We're outlaws. Gangsters? Outlaws? You're a nickel and dime criminal. A petty crook. And you need to figure out very quickly where it is you think you're going. Because let me tell you, white boy, you are definitely headed in the wrong direction. I've had enough of this. I'm going home. Hey, crook. Oh, yeah? What about you? You think the whole world's against you just because you're black? Something don't go your way, it's because you're black. They had a beer at the supermarket, it's because you're black. It rains and you get wet, it's because you're a black man. Well, you saw for yourself, there ain't no conspiracy here. No plot to get you off the island, nobody trying to assassinate you. That's all just as crazy as thinking that everybody with black skin is your brother. What do you know about black skin? 
I know for all your talk, you're about the whitest damn black man I ever met. What was kind of strange to me at this point is, like, Dabney Coleman, the cop, he seems to be after Andrew just as much as he's after Amos at this point, right? Like, he's, like, hasn't he been watching this movie? At the end, it's like the cop is, like, his true colors are, yeah, he is, in fact, a racist. It's so strange. I, I, I mean, that's, that's the way it came across to me. I mean, I don't know what their intention was. These dogs go tear after Sam Jackson and Cage, and they take the white people's dog for some reason? I'm not sure why, or maybe he just follows Sam Jackson. So Cage driving, is driving the car and driving away. Sam Jackson's like running through the woods with this dog, and there's a couple dogs chasing him, and I just thought of Raising Arizona and how much better in every way that dog chase was than this. And this is just sort of, you know, disheartening and sort of like a half measure at the end of this movie. Yeah, Cage has a car, and he's home free, and he's going to go off to Canada. And is he driving when he sees Sam Jackson being chased, or does he sort of have a change of conscience and decide to go back? I don't really know. I don't think it really matters, but <laughs> he turns around, really and yeah, and he, and he like almost runs over the old man and two dogs, but he does like donuts around them. Then he gives Sam Jackson a lift, but he doesn't like give him a lift all the way home. He like gives him a lift down the street. Oh, and then we should also mention <laughs> Sam Jackson's like activist friends converge at his summer home and face off against the cops, yeah. and they've got like torches. Like, old-fashioned, like, Frankenstein chase-the-monster-type yeah. torches. Like, they, they walked all the way from Alabama in the, in the 50s, like, <laughs> to the 90s right now. And there's a scuffle between them and the cops, and they light Sam Jackson's house off. They burn his house to the ground. And everyone just sort of scatters, like, uh-oh, <laughs> like, let's get out of here. There's a lot of, like, beats in this movie that really sort of have no repercussions. Like, things just sort of happen, and, like, it doesn't really matter. Like, the whole fallout or aftermath of that is that at the very end of the movie, Sam Jackson says to his wife, I think the house is going to need a little bit more work than we thought. And, like, that's it. There's no stakes, and there's nothing that matters at what all. What was even crazier is that the cops and the media all leave the scene not even knowing what happened to Sam Jackson. They're like, we still need to find Andrew. And, like, the movie ends before, like, any of that is really resolved. Sam Jackson drives with Nicolas Cage onto the ferry and across to the mainland to say goodbye and everything. And the movie ends before he gets back to the island in his house. So, technically, that threat is still up in the air. But it doesn't matter, because, like, nobody cares. Like, nobody... Like, the cops don't care. Sam Jackson, like, sort of doesn't care because he's with his wife. Writer sure doesn't care. But, you know, at the very end of the movie, and I think, going back to what you were saying before about whether or not Cage has a change of heart, I think he does, because I think it's supposed to, like, show that he's like, sort of turned a corner. At the very end of the movie, it's clear, as I said at the top of the podcast, that we solved racism. Because after a whole movie of yelling at Cage for, say, for using the word brother and calling him his brother... Sam Jackson says, you're welcome, brother. And it's like, all is well with the world. <laughs> Racism is over. That this horrible, terrible person that Cage was, all is redeemed. And I was thinking about that, too. And it's like, of, of, it's not like they're ever going to see each other ever again. So <laughs> why not just split peacefully? You know, why not just go out on a high note or something? But also, like, I got to say, like, the Sam Jackson character kind of changed a little, right? Like, he went from trusting white people to not trusting white people, then back to sort of trusting white people. And by the end of the movie, so, you know, there was a little bit of, of an arc there. The only other thing really to note in this movie 
movies that I think it's the first Cage Club movie with a post-credit sequence. It's like a real Marvel yeah, type that's, of movie. That's the last thing that I wanted to mention too. You know, if it wasn't for the amazing Sir Mix-a-Lot song over the closing credits, I probably would not have discovered the post-credit sequence. But I sat through that song. <laughs> that is the only reason that I stuck through the yeah, credits and, too. Uh, and you know, part of us are probably programmed now at this point to sit through credits, a, you know, a little more than usual because of like the Marvel films and things like that. But I was stunned a post-credit scene for this movie. Why? I don't know, but it also like is completely like the rest of the movie, just completely harmless. The dogs with Bloodhound Bob chasing the three dogs around. That's it. Yeah, it's, That's the, it's the the bloodhounds and the neighbors' dogs. So like they've all become friends. The white dog and the brown and the brown bloodhounds. They've all become friends and they're frolicking together through the fields. And then Bloodhound Bob yes. is chasing after him. Like get back here. <laughs> so the whole thing is that Cage was in Pittsburgh. He was trying to go to Canada. He made a wrong turn. Wound up in Massachusetts. At the end of the movie, he's in that car. He's driving away and he gets to like a T on the road and he makes a left and it's, it says that there's a like going like Canada is to his right. Wikipedia says that like that's just him like as the big joke to end the movie that he made the wrong decision again or whatever but i saw it as he was trying to break free of the because he tells everybody in the whole movie he's trying to go to canada i saw it as a way that he was trying to hide from them and sort of escape yeah, I, I, I would go with that. I'd go either way. You know, as a joke, it's a bad joke. You know, I don't see, you know, I could see them ending on a bad joke. Uh, I think your interpretation's a little smarter. I, I, I don't know if I would give them that much credit, but I like that interpretation more where it's like he told everyone he's going to Canada and that's not where they can find him at all. Like he's just going to go off to parts unknown. I actually thought he decided at the last second that he'll go to Mexico. You know, you could cross to Canada or you can cross to Mexico. Yeah. You ba- basically, if you're a criminal, those are your only two choices. Yeah, I just I saw it that way. But, but I like I like your interpretation. But that is Amos and Andrew, for better or worse, and mostly for worse. That is what the movie is, and it's it's oof, it's rough. It's not like this is this might be the one I enjoyed the least out of any of these movies so yeah, far. Yeah, this one halfway through was one where I sort of said, well, you know, I'm doing it for Cage Club. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, yeah, I still like you know some of the stuff nick cage does i said like you know i always like watching sam jackson you know i never have a problem with his with him it's just it's too bad the content of this movie and everything just yeah didn't didn't quite work out well i can tell you that the next movie that we're doing red rock west is very enjoyable i only saw it once it was a couple years ago so i don't really remember really remember much about it but i remember really liking it and it's one of those other ones that i had never heard of before i saw it during the cage marathon at draft house and so it's a welcome return from this ooh rock (laughs) rocky patch in cage club every every movie that we see even if like right now we don't love them it's just one step closer to the best part of his career just think of it like sort of like that you know what i mean yeah you know you take the good you take the bad and eventually you get to con air face off and uh, the rock so it's all beautiful there i sort of remember red rock west uh being on hbo a lot and it was one of my best friend's favorite movies in high school but i i've never seen it so i'm looking forward to finally checking this out i'm i'm gonna give my buddy a call after i watch it too and let him know i finally saw it you know 15 years later i look forward to moving on for everything cage club go to cageclub.me that's where you'll read all our reviews where you can follow us on twitter you where you can learn more about the podcast on itunes all that sort of fun stuff next time we have red rock west i don't know it's sort of under the radar i don't imagine it's too readily available in terms of streaming but we'll see i'm joey lewandowski and i'm mike manzi ow okay canada here i come and we'll see you next time on cage club 
You can check my blackness fact is I'm rough as a cactus Now I gotta change what I practice So I went to the suburbs and bought me a big house And now they wanna run a brother out I'm a well-educated young maker of revenue Rolling in a big black BMW So I'm supposed to fit because I'm straight legit But the police still wanna trip They accuse me of robbing myself Never seen a brother with wealth Running for commissioner But if I get out of this Chief, I'm getting ya Chief needs a cover-up plan Cause he heard I'm famous Call a crazy white boy Name was Amos I thought Amos was a burglar But when he saw me He said I never heard of ya He couldn't tell north from south But Amos was my only way Out of this suburban nightmare Liberals ain't friendly, so Amos got a shotgun and I got a skillet. Anything moving, I'ma straight up kill it. I'm a black man on the come up. I got done up and roughed up by a cop trying to get hooked up. I got a meal and I just sealed two more deals. And now I'm running from the cops, this ain't real. You see the cops sent Amos in to play that role. Be a burglar and rob my home. They offered him a deal and then took it back. Old Amos should have signed him a contract. Chief walks in talking that nigga smack. They want me for attempted murder The craziest case that a brother ever heard of The neighborhood fears me, they're scared to get near me The cops wanna smear me My suburban nightmare My hustle on just to get these cops gone. Four or five mil can't make my race change. It can make the pace change, but it won't maintain. I can't go outside the job, cause my next door neighbor got a prejudice dog. But it's America, home of the free. Life in the burbs ain't nothing like TV. Now I'm running from the cop clan, cause my neighborhood told the cops. Mr. and Mrs. Gilman next door, puffing on a joint, kinky to the core. And that's the typical role model. White picket fence, big house, and a bottle. Who can I blame for the stereotypical mix up? The innocent again get tripped up. Things are supposed to change when you grow to my size. Open your eyes to my suburban nightmare. the pizza, homie. My suburban nightmare! And we outie. Misty! Mindy! Come back here. 
You hear your daddy? Come back here. Come back here. You listen to your daddy. Come back here. Come back here. Come back. Come on. Come on.